0: Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS, the world's largest membership organization for anti-financial crime professionals. In this episode, I talk with Oliver Below, reporter for The Guardian and author of four books, including two on financial crime, kleptocrats, and money laundering. Oliver and I talk about his latest book, Butler to the World, how Britain became the servant of tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats, and criminals. I hope you find the podcast informative, and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Oliver Below is a reporter with The Guardian, the author of at least four books that I can count, his most recent being Butler to the World, how Britain became the servant of tycoons, tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals. And I'm pleased to have him here to talk about Butler to the World. Thanks for being here, Oliver, and welcome. Thanks very much for having me on. So let's go right into, and I know you've been asked this question before, but let's just set this up. Butler to the World lays out pretty effectively how Britain and the overseas territories became a favored, maybe the favorite destination for stolen and laundered funds from kleptocrats and other criminals. What does this mean, butler to the world? How did you come up with describing this phenomenon as butler to the world?
1: It's a really fun question, to be honest. The phrase was the crystallation, in a way, of work I'd been doing for years into financial crime. Much of it the kleptocratic fraud out of the former Soviet Union, and I had become accustomed to the UK involvement in these frauds, whether it was as the you know final destination for the wealth, where that was oligarchs buying London property, or else as a sort of transit place whereby this wealth would wash through a British tax haven or British lawyers would defend the oligarchs in court or British shell companies would hide the ownership of the wealth or whatever. There was always, but always, a UK involvement in these kind of scams. And I had become accustomed to it in the same way that you can become accustomed to anything, I suppose. And I was having a chat with an American academic who was interested in the UK's role as a money laundering hub. He came at it from a rather, I suppose, what I might call a naive perspective, but for me, it was a very usefully naive perspective because his expectation was that the UK would be very similar to the US in how it worked. I think both Americans and Brits can be guilty of this because we both speak the same language. We kind of assume things are similar in each other's countries. He had come to the UK looking for people in Britain who were doing equivalent work to the DOJ to combat money laundering or you know, Homeland Security investigations or the Southern District of New York. And so he'd met me, and basically he was hoping to raid my contact book and I would introduce him to all these people. And he kept asking me, who's doing the equivalent work of the kleptocracy cell or whatever at the DOJ? And I'd have to say, we don't have anyone who does that. Uh, who's doing the equivalent work of Homeland Security investigations? I'd have to say, no one does that. Or the FBI specialist team, no one does that. And, you know, it became embarrassing for me and possibly for him. And eventually I had to stop him and say, look, you just keep asking me this. Who's doing this work? Uh, No one is. That work doesn't happen here. No one in this country in a law enforcement capacity is doing systematic, well-resourced work to stop financial crime. It just isn't happening. And then I was trying to explain in a simple way, why is that? And I said, because you see, in America, you're the policeman to the world, right? That's what you do. And then I was like, well, in Britain, what are we? And the image that came to mind was a butler, you know, someone who just stands there beautifully dressed and just helps people to do things. Now, it might be they might be helping them you know, have a cup of tea, or they might be helping them have a poached egg in the morning, or they might be helping them get away with fraud, or they might be helping them find a wife. They'd be helping them do anything. The point is that Britain is just in the business of helping people do stuff, uh, helping them spend their money, invest their money, hide their money. Anyone who can afford services is welcome in this country because we'll sell them anything. And that's what I was trying to say with Butler to the World. The more I thought about it, the more it struck me as a really apposite metaphor for the role that Britain plays in, in the global criminal economy as the sort of the centre of top end crime. I don't mean common guard and street fraud. We're, we're not interested in that. There's no profit in that for us. But anything involving someone with significant amounts of money who's prepared to invest a lot of that money in getting away with it, then Britain will help them. And that's what the book's about. The book tells the story of how Britain became that sort of super enabler, hyper enabler to the world's wealthiest people.
0: Britain is legislation and a number of things respond to this. I'm going to get to that in a minute, but I first want to talk about, as you've laid out the problem here, I'm struck by the fact that it's really difficult to bring financial crime cases in the UK. So this money's coming in. There's a Butler to the World facilitation of these illicit funds. And when law enforcement tries to rear its head and and do something about this, it's really difficult. For instance, the courts arguably seem to favor property and privacy rights among many concerns. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Why unexplained wealth orders have not worked the way people anticipated they might in the UK?
1: Yes, you're right. There is a instinctive bias, I think, in the UK judiciary in favor of property and privacy. But that is more of a symptom of a far greater problem than the problem itself. And that problem is that for decades, the investigation or prosecution of large-scale financial crime has been systematically under-resourced by government after government. This is not a party political issue. It isn't like there's one party that does a good job or one party that doesn't. Across the board in the UK, there seems to have been a witting or unwitting strategic choice that we would attract this money here in order to boost our own economy at the expense of other people's. it's a story I tell in the book. This goes back to the 1950s, the end of the British Empire, when there was this very capable, very significantly sized financial center in the city of London, with nothing to do because I had no empire anymore to serve. So, you know, what do you do with a financial center if there's no finance? Well, it looks around and finds other finance to do. And that's when the city of London moved into the offshore space, started offering services in dollars rather than in pounds with colossal consequences for the ability of other countries to regulate their financial sectors, to collect taxes and so on. So, you know, since the 1950s, Britain has by offering offshore financial services, initially just in the UK and then subsequently in its various satellite territories, has essentially profited from allowing the wealthy citizens of other countries to evade their own country's
0: regulations and taxes. So you're sort of saying that's you know, in the way the courts respond, but it's the whole taking of that posture to begin with, I guess.
1: Yeah, it isn't like that there's some kind of secret seminars for judges to say, If the daughter of a former Soviet president comes up before you, you know she's got an unexplained wealth order against her. Go easy on her because she's got loads of property. It's not like that. It's more of a really long-term, deeply embedded favoring of the interests of property. You know, and this is you know it's presented as a principled thing, right? It's presented as a protecting property, and that that's a rule of law and everything. But it's never really discuss that this has a definite downside, that if that property has been stolen in the first place, then allowing people to hang on to it is definitely a bad idea. I mean, you asked about unexplained wealth orders. I didn't answer that part of your previous question. I'm sure many of the listeners will be aware of what unexplained wealth orders are, but just in case they're not, they were an interesting legislative innovation brought in um, five, six years ago now, which are intended to overturn the burden of proof on property, certainly on the investigation to property, to try and defang the power of offshore corporate structures to obscure ownership. That if someone had wealth in the UK, then instead of prosecutors having to prove that it was corruptly acquired, prosecutors would have an unexplained wealth order, and then the owners of the property would have to produce documentation to show it wasn't corruptly acquired. Essentially, they would be forced to explain the origin of their wealth, if the prosecutors deemed it to be unexplained. And this was hyped hugely when it was first introduced by politicians, very unwisely hyped, I think, probably. This was around the time that the TV series McMafia came out, and it was called the Mukmafia Law, that it was going to drive the oligarchs out of London. But the first really big test case was a, a case brought by the National Crime Agency to some property owned by the daughter of the former president of Kazakhstan, Darigan Azebaeva, and her son, Norali Aliyev. Essentially, it was a fiasco. The National Crime Agency was totally routed by the lawyers retained by Doriga Nazarbayev and her son. Uh, you know, And there is a bit of criticism, definitely uh, goes to the judge for that. The judge was perhaps a bit credulous when it came to believing court decisions from Kazakhstan without taking into account the fact that that was a country pretty much owned by her father at the time that the court decision was made. There's also a, you know, a lot of blame has to attach itself to the National Crime Agency, which really didn't do a very good job of investigating the case. Uh, The fact that the only reference to her father in the entire court judgment, uh, his name is spelt wrong, suggests that perhaps the National Crime Agency didn't do a very good job of bringing the kind of kleptocratic element into the case. But since that case happened, you know, she was vindicated the UWO was thrown out. Uh, Since that case happened, the, the National Crime Agency hasn't brought another Unexplained wealth order in relation to a politically connected person, politically um, exposed person from anywhere. So, you know, essentially it killed off the NCA's appetite for bringing these cases. And that's something we've seen repeatedly, really, with these new innovations come in. There's hype and enthusiasm, and then they don't amount to anything. And the reason they don't amount to anything is because the National Crime Agency and other law enforcement agencies simply don't have the resources they need to bring a proper case. They don't have the people, they don't have the expertise, you know, the kind of resources to really dedicate themselves to investigating properly. And that's something we see again and again and again. A little bit what it reminds me of, a metaphor that it reminds me of, is a bit like someone who's resolved to get fit. You know, they buy all the right athleisure wear or whatever, and they buy a a subscription to a gym, but they don't actually go to the gym. So when it comes time to run the race, they look the part, you know, and they've got the right documentation, but they're not actually capable of running a race when it comes to being up against someone who's, who's a bit better trained. It feels like a bit like that with the UK enforcement agencies. You know, they look good, uh, they sound good, all the laws are right, all the laws are in place, but no one's really put the time in to train them up, to make them strong enough and fit enough to actually run the distance against these incredibly well-resourced and incredibly skilled uh, defence attorneys. And that's the problem, I think, uh, in a nutshell. We're sort of expecting our agencies to go from couch to 100k just like that, and that's just not how it works.
0: And I think you point out in the book, the 1.5 million budget for the NCA that was, was blown in pursuing that one unexplained wealth order.
1: The funding in the FBI per agent is three times what they have in the National Crime Agency. And the FBI is itself also far larger, It has a far larger number of agents. So you have not just a, a much smaller envelope of agents able to bring cases, but also just far less funding per agent. They don't have the resources or the expenses, budgets, or, or anything to really bring or investigate complicated cases. And it's really instructive, I think, to compare the National Crime Agency in that regard to the Revenue and Customs, HMRC, which is pretty well resourced, actually. It's probably as well resourced for the size of the economy as the IRS is in the, in the US. You know, when the UK wants to investigate fraud, i.e. tax fraud or benefit fraud, it really goes for it and it does a pretty good job. The tax gap in this country is pretty tight. You know, they're doing fine because the government actually cares. But when it comes to investigating crimes that affect other people, uh, particularly foreigners, they couldn't really care less. And that's very much evidenced in the fact that when it comes down to it, they just don't resource the agencies and the bodies which would be able to make any difference about that.
0: So there has really been a, a great outcry Uh, as a result of the the kinds of of, of kleptocrats running wild, uh, and and I do put that in quotes, but taking advantage of the Butler State. Part of that response has led to things like the UK Economic Crime Act, and the Companies Act, and the Land Registry Act. Are they going to make a difference? There've been many, many aspects to this problem, and it tends to
1: be addressed pretty piecemeal. But in the last year, as a response to the war in Ukraine, The government has been determined or certainly has professed itself to be determined to really take action to restrict the room for manoeuvre for oligarchs to bring their stolen wealth to the UK and to spend it and enjoy it freely. The first legislative response in that regard was what was called the Economic Crime Act of March last year. It wasn't really an Economic Crime Act. That's rather overstating. It was more of a sort of corporate transparency act. And what it did was, apart from a couple of small other details, it imposed transparency on the offshore structures used to own property in the UK. And that is something in which transparency campaigners and anti-corruption campaigners have been demanding for years. And it's very welcome that that happened. Will it make any difference? It's definitely too early to say. I mean, the, the registry has only really just been kind of completed at the end of last month, the end of January. And even so, a lot of companies haven't yet filed the right documentation. But a problem that there is traditionally with uh, UK corporate registries and that we see repeated in this one is that there's no real verification of the information provided to them. And we can see that with this one, that even some of the information provided about the true owners of these shell companies is clearly not accurate. So people are still trying it on, putting, filing false information, trying essentially to hide their identity, even in a nominally transparent registry. And that problem is the one that's supposedly solved by, or supposedly will be solved, by a new economic crime bill going through Parliament at the moment. Again, it's rather sort of grandly titled an Economic Crime Bill, when what it really is, is to regulate Companies House, which is the UK's corporate registry. What it should do is give Companies House the powers to actually check information provided with it. You know, it can just log on to Companies House at the moment, create a company for £12. No one checks the information you provide. It's all incredibly straightforward. Provided there's information in every box, then you can say whatever you like, you know, and people do it's very, very easy indeed. So what this bill is supposed to do is to give the registrar of companies the powers to actually check that information and to come down quite hard on anyone who abuses the registry with false information. If it works, it's good. It would hopefully prevent UK shell companies being used in more egregious money laundering scams like the Danske Bank and so on, which they've been used in. But, you know, the proof is very much going to be in the delivery. You know, I am sceptical that this will be a real game changer simply because there is such a long, Record in the UK of these laws being brought in, and then the agencies never being provided with the resources they need to actually enforce them. You know there are you know, millions of companies on the UK corporate registry; hundreds of thousands of new ones are created every year. To check the information provided is a real tough job. You need to do forensic, careful work to make sure that that's correct, and that will require lots of people with very sophisticated technology and so on. And I see absolutely no recognition from the government that it's willing to put forward the amount of money required to really do that job. You know, I'm glad that it's happening, but at the moment it feels a little bit like our putative athlete is just buying yet another gym membership without actually getting out and pounding the tarmac at all. Um, and until they do, you know, I'll be a little bit sceptical that this is really going to actually uh, restrict the space available to kleptocrats and financial criminals in London.
0: It would seem like the U.S., uh, the U.K., the E.U. have been catalyzed, uh, you know, in an effort against Russia, and and in terms of the sanctions that have been placed on Russia, and and hasn't this done something towards maybe changing regulation in the courts? I, I guess you mentioned this was a little bit of an impetus for the Economic Crime Act, but is this something to be hopeful about that actually now kleptocrats, at least Russian kleptocrats, are being treated differently than being butlered to?
1: Yeah, Look, maybe I was being a bit moaning Myrtle previously. No, all of this is good, right? All of this is progress that we haven't had before. You bank your wins and and then you demand more. That's how it works in this world. But no, it is good. It's good that we've had this bit of legislation that's passed, another bit of legislation that's going through. And it's also good that the UK, along with the US, the EU and, and other Western countries, have been so tough at sanctioning Russian oligarchs. And that's something which I think not many of us would have expected, particularly considering the rather feeble response to previous crises involving Russia. And that has definitely altered the calculations of the whole Russian ruling elite, which previously is very accustomed to being able to extract as much wealth as it wants from Russia and to spend it in London. That is no longer an option available to them. And that is something that we need to be grateful for. Uh, However, sanctions are not a law enforcement measure. They are a foreign policy measure. They don't help uh, to investigate financial crime. They don't help to sort of unpick the bases of the networks that brought the money here, that allowed the money to be moved and spent in the first place. They just block the money after it's arrived. You know, if we want to prevent kleptocrats and corrupt officials doing the enormous harm that they're doing to the world, we need to get ahead of the crimes and prevent them being able to launder the proceeds of those crimes in the first place. It's not enough just to freeze that money after it's been laundered, because that means the crime has already been committed and the harm has already been done. So yes, I'm glad that this has been sanctioned. But what I really want is for this to be the first step in a complete unpicking of this whole butlering business model. We need to see much more investment in law enforcement, much more focus on on the kind of really long-term, difficult investigative and prosecutorial work into this kind of wealth, because that's what will really make a difference in the long term and will prevent more regimes like the Kremlin regime coming to power. Because, you know, really the calculation underpinning so much of what the um, Kremlin regime did and what oligarchs have done is that it doesn't really matter what they do to Russia because they can steal as much from Russia because they've always been confident in the knowledge that they can keep that money in London that calculation needs to end. If we can stop kleptocrats thinking that, they'll be a lot more reluctant to undermine the stability and security of their own countries because they, you, know, you, you don't burn a boat when you're sitting in it if you don't have a lifeboat to go to. So that's what we'd like to try and achieve, I suppose, by toughening up the UK and making it a less attractive destination for kleptocratic cash. But uh, yeah, the progress has been made in the last year. You know, we've gone from 2% to 3%, but you know, we've got quite a long, long way to go until we're at 100%.
0: Well, let me ask you about the role of financial institutions in all this. The audience for the podcast series is varied, but it would be pretty safe to say there's a core audience out there of compliance professionals, anti-financial crime professionals in financial institutions. I think the stereotype is they often report the stuff and then it doesn't get acted on. Sometimes they don't report the stuff. What's the role properly of financial institutions in this issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that financial institutions continue to have a a bad reputation. And I think that's a little bit unfair. I think that certainly since the financial crisis, financial institutions have brought in, uh, in response to, you know, really strident demands from governments have brought in very strict compliance functions to try and prevent this kind of money coming in. And if you look at the sheer volume of suspicious activity reports being filed in most major Western economies, you see that they are really producing a huge amount of output. I suppose my Difficulty with that is that, you know, what's, yeah as you say, you know, what are those suspicious activity reports actually doing? Where are they going? You know, and is there the kind of investment in financial intelligence units, particularly in the US and the UK, that, that's required for anyone to be able to actually read those reports? And, you know, I think, obviously, self evidently, as the people listening to this podcast probably know, the answer to that is no. You know, I think FinCEN and the UK FIU, both of them employ around 200, 250 people, you know, and yet each unit is, you know, receiving literally millions um, of SARS, you know every year or two uh, so that's not enough people to read them and you know until those agencies are adequately resourced and it's good to see there is a bit more resource now going into them you know it's hard to see that the SARS will actually lead to something you know we need to be pleased about the response that financial institutions have made you know they have invested in compliance they are producing SARS. that's good And hopefully, if public sector agencies can be persuaded to put that kind of resourcing and effort into beefing up their own functions, those laws will actually lead to more prosecutions and therefore a restricted space for money laundering. But it is one of the great frustrations of this world that despite the huge investment from the private sector going into compliance, it hasn't actually far as I can tell, translated into any reduction in the amount of money that's being laundered anywhere in the world. It's just shifted it into slightly different bits of the economy. And, you know, that's frustrating. And that requires a much more strategic uh, response from governments, which we're currently, as far as I can tell, entirely lacking.
0: Well, you know, uh, we're really almost out of time. And you've touched on a number of things already, perhaps, and maybe this is just summing that up that you're a little bit hopeful about. I I don't see you bounding with optimism, uh, but a little bit hopeful about, and uh, also perhaps some of the things that you're worried about when you think about where Britain needs to go in not being the butler world and addressing this problem. So the up and the downside from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm impatient. I can see the harm that enabling of kleptocracy and money laundering does. You know, I can see it Every time I visit Ukraine or whatever, I can see it. I can see the damage, and I want progress. Yesterday, of course, I do. But you know, I recognise that this is um, a deeply embedded part of the British economy. There's a huge and powerful lobby of people who really don't want it to change, and that takes a lot of patient work. So I'm impatient. I'm going to keep wanging on about it. And it's good that there's progress in this last year, but it's not nearly enough. And I'm going to keep demanding more because. You know, we have for far too long been part of the problem and it doesn't need to be that way britain could be part of the solution and i'm going to do my best to try and flip that round so we're actually part of the battle against kleptocracy and financial crime rather than something impeding that battle which is what we've been up to now
0: in ending you've also pointed out something that we've touched on throughout this interview the great cost of this kind of crime for places like ukraine and and also the cost for Britain? I mean, this cost Britain something to be the butler to the world.
1: At first, I think it was seen as free money. The crime was happening overseas, money was ending up here and and wasn't that great. But if we, via helping kleptocrats move and keep their money, if we are strengthening and enabling a regime like Putin's, that is a, a foolish thing to do because that is essentially helping our Enemies to arm themselves and strengthen themselves. We are, as it were, providing them with the rope with which they'll hang us. There is a national security dimension to this, and also there's a simple fraud dimension. You know, the mechanisms that are used by kleptocrats to hide and move their money and launder their money are exactly the same mechanisms used by Common Garden fraudsters. You know, the cost of fraud, that's absolutely colossal. That is a cost that is falling on ordinary people. And that's again because of the complacency about financial crime. And it, you know, in order to pick up of the state apparatus, so it's capable of tackling those fraudsters. It requires the same kind of investment that is required to tackle kleptocracy, so yeah, there is a huge damage that's coming to britain here there's a real been a real blowback from this you know decision or, or complicity in enabling financial crime, and that's something that governments have been slow to realise. And I think it's certainly something which I'm trying to explain to them, because, you know, I think for a long time, this has been seen as just a win-win for the UK. It's free money, and it very much isn't. It's just, um, you know, essentially storing up problems for ourselves down the line.
0: Oliver Bolo, author of Butler to the World. Thank you for being here today and really appreciate the conversation.
1: Oh, that's my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Oliver Bullough about his most recent book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became a Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats, and Criminals. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because financial crime matters to me and to you. See you next time.